A couple of listeners, Roy Muller and Matthew Young, got hold of me on social media to point out that I'd missed a reference to another song made by George in our episode 26. I'll play the relevant section first. George sings a line that could be improvised. We're not really making it. What I assume to be an improvised lyric is in fact George singing the chorus of the Simon and Garfunkel tune, Faking It, released as a single in July of 1967 and subsequently included on their album Bookends. The lyrics seem to be a reflection on Paul Simon experiencing what we now call imposter syndrome. As George sings it, one wonders if it has a different, more relevant meaning. Perhaps an observation on the Beatles or George's own lack of motivation. Thanks for the feedback, guys. That's exactly the kind of interaction I was hoping for. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. This is roll 29, 29. 29. 3, 2, 1. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quantum of tunes for the next 10 years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 29 We've made it. We're almost at the end of January 6th, 1969. Season 3 has been a long haul, But I think so much happened on this day that it's been worth going into extra detail about the key events. After this episode, we'll take another break, mainly to give me a chance to research the next season, and we'll be back in a few weeks. A podcast recommendation. You're wrong about. Much as I like to explore the truth behind the myths in the Beatles story, this podcast looks at stories you often believe to be true and offers an alternative perspective. Probably of interest to WAD fans, one episode discusses the common misconception that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles, so check that out. We'll shortly join the Beatles, winding up today's rehearsals, but first, here is a summary of episode 28. As rehearsals for two of us conclude, Paul suggests a slide guitar part for George. Both John and George attempt to approximate this sound and in doing so hit upon the two note riff that will eventually begin the song in its finished version. Mal returns from wherever he's been and John asks him if he has picked up the lyrics to Across the Universe. He hasn't but he says Peter Brown will contact Dick James and get them. George has another go at demoing Hear Me Lord but this time is interrupted by Mal. They run through a version of Across the Universe, John on guitar, George back on wah-wah guitar, Ringo thumping the bass drum and Paul harmonising with John. John struggles to remember all the lyrics, so only one run-through is attempted. After receiving an acetate of Mary Hopkins' postcard album, which he says he already has a copy of, George has another attempt at playing Hear Me Lord for his bandmates. John interrupts him, this time suggesting it's probably better to rehearse All Things Must Pass rather than something new since they already know it. John moves to organ and Paul tells George about an idea he had for an arrangement based on Joe Cocker's With a Little Help From My Friends. It would have been a curious cycle of events for the arrangement of a Harrison tune to be based on a reworking of a Lennon McCartney song. 
As it transpires, George ignores this suggestion. The tape cuts, and we get a tiny section of the previous Across the Universe rehearsal. Presumably, we are now listening to a different spool of tape. The version of All Things Must Pass that follows is an improvement on Friday's rehearsal. There are mistakes and everyone forgets the ending, but at least they are all taking the song seriously. After reminding them all of the ending, George counts in another run-through. This is better still. As it concludes, John finds the chords to Chris Montez's biggest hit, Let's Dance, on the Lowry organ, and gives a brief rendition. Paul counts in the song again, cutting off John. We hear he's still exploring what to play on bass, much as George was attempting to do on guitar in two of us. George, however, allows this improvisation, a consideration that Paul doesn't offer in return. Ringo improvises a stop-start kind of drum pattern in the middle section. Again, something he doesn't attempt on Paul's songs. As this concludes, Paul demonstrates to George what he's worked out so far on bass. George doesn't offer any criticism, but he does ask Ringo to play continuously through the middle section. I was puzzled by the next exchange, but I now have a theory. Michael Lindsay Hogg can be heard saying the word indomitable to Paul. Paul replies with the statement improvised on the spot, indomitable, indubitable, immissable, grouper man. I suspect Michael is expressing admiration to Paul for pressing on with rehearsals, despite the open hostility of earlier. Grouper man, one can only assume, is the superhero of the group. Like I said, just a theory. The tape cuts and restarts midway through a performance of All Things Must Pass. George now singing John's suggested lyric, A Mind Can Blow Those Clouds Away. As the performance ends, you can hear Paul looking through his clipboard for what else to play. This may be enough to prompt George's response when asked if he wants to do another run-through. He shrugs, Not really. Rehearsals for All Things Must Pass were half-hearted, but that's mainly the fault of the song's composer, who's just not feeling it today. Let's return to the Twickenham soundstage. Now the Beatles have a new song to learn. Paul offers a new song for consideration. Uh, I'll show you the chords then, this other one. Uh, she came in through the bathroom window. So yeah. She came in through. Now this can be slightly. She came in through the bathroom window. I'm guessing that the chords are written on the song sheets or they're watching where Paul is putting his fingers. Didn't anybody tell? Then that's like a sort of... That should, that should go like four in the bar or something, solid. Once again, Paul is directing both the rhythm and the guitar parts simultaneously. John asks for clarification on the chords in the chorus. suggesting a chugging rhythm for this song much like it was with two of us and it seems like he's looking for a song to have that kind of rhythm It's like Diana, says Paul, referring to the Paul Anker song. Mm -hmm. 
For some of the sections of this feature, I'm indebted to the website songfacts.com. Landis Kiernan, who was known at the time as Susie Landis, relates this tale about the origins of the song She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. Here all this time, I thought this song was written about me and my friend Judy. Judy and I were paid $1,500 by Green and Stone, a couple of sleazy artist managers driving around the Sunset Strip in a chinchilla line caddy limo to borrow a quarter-inch master of a day in the life off of David Crosby's Reel to Reel, drive it to Sunset Sound Studios in Hollywood where Green and Stone duped it, then put it back where we found it at Crosby's Beverly Glen Canyon pad. Crosby was playing with the birds that day in Venice, so we knew his house was empty. This was the day after a major rainstorm, so the back of the house was one big mudslide. We climbed up it, leaving eight-inch deep footprints, and you guessed it, gained access via the bathroom window, leaving behind footprints and a veritable goldmine of forensic matter. We were really nervous, and did not make clear mental notes of how the master reel was on the player but did have the sense to leave Crosby's front door unlocked while we drove across town and back. After the tape was back in the machine, badly, we changed out of our muddy shoes, drove to the Cheetah in Venice, and hung out with the birds into the evening, thinking we were awfully clever and cute. We did not know why Green and Stone would pay so much money for a copy of a Beatles song, other than the fact that it was a groundbreaking and mind-blowing piece but found out the next day when we heard a day in the life on KHJ, I think it was, Green and Stone had used it as payola to get one of their groups the cake, singing, yes we have no bananas, on the air, which they did, and it sucked, but oh well. By the following day, a day in the life was no longer on the air, and just a day or two after that, there was a front page blurb in the LA Times about a day in the life getting aired one month prior to the release date of the single, and the Sgt. Pepper LP, which apparently cost the Beatles plenty, and they were suing Capital or Columbia, whichever the label was, for two million, and McCartney was flying in from London to deal with the mess. Oops. Judy and I nearly sank through the floor. Though we were active dancers in the various nightclubs on the Sunset Strip, we lay low for a while, not knowing what to expect. In fact, other than the song being written and a great cover by Joe Cocker, nothing happened. We got our money, spent it on groovy clothes, of course, what else was there, and never heard a word about it. I knew what I could not say, and protected by a silver spoon, seemed to explain why there were no repercussions. My dad was a TV director who had already threatened to bust and ruin Davy Crosby for smoking pot and deflowering his daughter. He had clout and David was afraid of him. Judy was from money and influence too. I feel that David knew exactly who had broken in and borrowed the tape but couldn't press charges. He probably wasn't supposed to be playing the master for all his friends and hangers on, so they must have been hell to pay for him. I always felt bad for the credit must have cost him with his friend Paul McCartney. Oh, the bit about Sundays on the phone to Monday, Tuesdays on the phone to me. That was somebody named Sunday, maybe a detective, I can't remember now, calling the producer Billy Monday about the break-in and the song leak. Billy Monday, knowing she was a friend of Paul McCartney's, called Tuesday Weld, and it was she who called Paul in London and told him the news. Her story seems perhaps literally fantastic, but Landis is not alone in claiming the provenance of Paul's song. In the 2006 documentary, the classic artist series, The Moody Blues, Mike Pinder, keyboard player during the band's classic period, claimed that the inspiration for Bathroom Window was a story he told Paul McCartney about a groupie climbing into an open bathroom window and spending the night with flautist Ray Thomas. In this version of events, Paul was so inspired that he immediately picked up his guitar and burst into song. Even John Lennon had his own version of the events that led to the song's creation. It was when Paul and I went to America to publicize Apple, and we were just in the flat we were staying in, and he just came out with that line. She came in through the bathroom window, so he had it for years, and he eventually finished it. Paul himself states in his recent book, The Lyrics 1956 to the Present, that the song 
goes back to the fact a woman did actually sneak into my house through the bathroom window. There was a bit of jar. A fan apparently one of a group called the Apple Scrubs. She found a ladder lying outside my house in London. As far as I recall, she stole a picture of my cotton salesman dad, or robbed me of it. But I got the song in return. One of the Apple Scrubs, Diane Ashley, relates this story. We were bored. He was out, so we decided to pay him a visit. We found the ladder in his garden and stuck it up at the window, which he'd left slightly open. I was the one who climbed up and got in. She opened the door and let the others in. Like forerunners of the infamous bling ring, the scruffs stole a number of photographs in addition to clothes. Another scruff, Margot Bird, who had established herself as a helping hand to McCartney, taking his dog for walks and later finding work at Apple Corps working in promotions, was approached by Paul and asked to retrieve the treasured photograph of his father, which she did. I knew who had done it and I discovered a lot of the stuff had already gone to America, but I knew that there was one picture he particularly wanted back, a colour-tinted picture of his father in a 30s frame. I knew who had taken this and got it back for him. Fellow scruff Carol Bedford confirms Paul's version of the song's inspiration in her 1984 book Waiting for the Beatles. She says Paul told her, I've written a song about the girls who broke in. It's called She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. I didn't believe it at first because he'd hated so much when we broke in. But then I suppose anything can inspire a song, can't it? I know all the neighbours rang him when they saw we'd got in and I'm sure that gave rise to the line Sunday's on the phone to Monday, Tuesday's on the phone to me. Well, perhaps that's where those lines originate or perhaps they are, as I suspect, Paul simply recycling the lines from the bridge of Lady Madonna. Tuesday afternoon is never ending, Wednesday morning papers didn't come. The verse itself is a retread of an old chord sequence, though this time not one of Paul's own. When Paul makes reference to the Diana chords, I've heard some podcasters interpret this as some kind of beat or code. Paul is being much more literal than that. Bathroom window goes from A to F sharp minor to D. Paul Anker's 1957 hit Diana is the same sequence, but two semitones lower, G to E minor to C, resolving on a D chord that Paul's sum leaves out. The Beatles clearly know this sequence and therefore pick up the song very quickly, which must be a welcome relief after a fraught afternoon rehearsal. Lyrically, aside from the opening line, Paul appears to have relied on a stream of consciousness approach, choosing words more for sound than meaning. This has led to much fanciful speculation as to the song's meaning, as you can tell from the Landis Kiernan account. In fact, the master tape story doesn't appear to be likely either, since David Crosby has recorded in interviews that the Beatles first played him a mix of a day in the life when he visited EMI in February of 1967. He makes no mention of hearing it at home. Paul does explain the inspiration for the final verse in the Barry Miles biography many years from now. In October-November 1968, staying in New York with Linda and her daughter Heather, Stuck for a final verse to the song, he noticed the driver of the yellow cab that would take them to the airport for their flight back to London had an ID card with his name Eugene Quits and a note that he was ex-police department. So I got, so I quit the police department, which are part of the lyrics to that. This was the great thing about the randomness of it all. If I hadn't been in this guy's cab or if it had been someone else driving, the song would have been different.
Um, now you see, it's, it is again, it's like another slow song, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sing fast. Two, three, four. She came in, she came in. Okay, two, three, four. She came in through the bathroom window. George thinks Wawa will also work for this song. Although John will later sing the high harmony part in this chorus, it sounds like George is the first one to discover it. This is a real demonstration of how efficiently Paul can direct the arrangement of a song if the song is fairly simple. It all comes together in minutes. Paul thinks it may be too similar in tempo to the other songs, so he may abandon it. Okay, A. So, one, two, and, and in that bit, if you can, so do harmonies. Didn't anybody tell? Didn't anybody see? Sunday's on the phone to Monday. Asking John to sing the harmony, George demonstrates it for him, but John seems to have other ideas. Worked at 15 clubs a day. She thought I knew the answer. John is playing the lead line. That's still George covering the harmony line for now. At this point, the verses start abruptly on the turnaround of each chorus with no pause. That sounds to me like John and George are now singing the vocal harmony together. That's all there is, says Paul. She came in through the bathroom window. Okay. John shouts encouragement. He likes this one. Tape cuts. Eight ninety six continued. The echo of the Twickenham stage suits this song. This is wrong. ready to finish for the day. John leads the band through another run through. He's quite enamoured with this one. Interestingly, John is making up his own words here. I distinctly can hear, she was blind, but she could not see.
John asks Mal if he's got the words to Across the Universe yet. He hasn't. Paul picks up from where the day began, charting Carry That Way. I'm going to throw this one open again. I've no idea what this person in the crew is saying. Very strange comment from John here. We were here a day, weren't we? And then he says, I won't need it tonight. I don't want to draw too many conclusions from that. When he says goodbye to Michael, he says open-minded to reassure Michael, I suppose, that he's going to think about his ideas. Hey, see you, see you kids. See you tomorrow. 10, 10. Now, can we see any rushes in the morning? Uh, the colour stuff. Here. Yeah, can we get a car? Can we really get a car tomorrow? A mini car. A mini car. How much colour is for Quite a bit. Two rows. Two rows. Two rows. Yeah, I'd like to see that, man, yeah. And if you're top shot, let's do it. Michael wants to see some colour rushes in the morning, presumably before the Beatles get there. Quite a lot of colour is shot, 18 hours apparently. The tape hasn't finished, it's being spooled forward. George, talking to Mal, mutters, Rhubarb, rhubarb. This is apparently what background artists in plays were meant to say to simulate a murmuring crowd. In this case, I think it's because George has become aware the boom mic has swung in his direction. And so he mutters something unintelligible. I got my mum and dad you know. Oh yeah, okay. Mal has his parents staying apparently. Okay, that's good. That's cool. Good night all, good night microphone. Good night. See you Mike. Michael says good night to Mal. Mal says he's not leaving yet. And so Michael says, okay, I'll see you in the bar. This is just the sound of the crew packing up for the day. Michael and Tony are going for a meeting. It's a wrap, someone says.
George is apparently still there. He's interested in the conversation about how much footage they've shot. That sounds quite a lot like Glyn Johns in the background saying, thank you very much, Kev. I assume to Kevin Harrington. One of the crew is saying, have you finished Les to Les Parrot? Tape cuts. Although the real turning point in the Get Back project is clearly George walking out on January 10th, the chain of events that led to his departure began today. George's mood changed over the weekend of January 4th, 5th. The previous Friday, he had talked with Paul about how he really felt involved in the creative process on the last album and how he now wanted to collaborate so that he treated Paul's songs as if they were his own and vice versa. Events over the weekend, which is purported to be the period when Patty moved out of Kinforns, may have made George gloomy from the offset. It's interesting that the song he composed over that weekend is the devotional Hear Me Lord, where he is, amongst other things, asking for help to be a better person. The time spent with other musicians on the Jackie Lomax sessions and with Dylan and the band had boosted George's confidence in his own abilities. It quickly becomes apparent during the lengthy rehearsals for Don't Let Me Down that his ideas aren't respected and that Paul dominates by sheer force of personality when the band work on new material. His comments about how he might as well have not bothered are quite painful to listen to. Right from the get-go, George brings negative energy to the rehearsals. Having struggled to sleep, he suggests forgetting about the show early on, although he states this is just to go back to bed. The morning begins with Paul, Michael and Glyn discussing the BBC Omnibus programme about Cream's final concert. We learn that all of the Beatles except John caught at least part of it and no one was too impressed. But the more freeform jamming of the Cream seems to inspire them to have a go themselves. Perhaps in the hope that some inspiration will come from it. It doesn't. Everyone apart from Paul is a little worse for wear in the morning. George hasn't slept, Ringo is hungover, and John complains of not feeling well. Motivation to begin work is very low. With everyone present, Michael tries to engage them in a discussion about the proposed live show, but effectively gets the brush off from both John and Paul. George, too, fails to get any interest from John and Paul, despite several attempts during the day to play them Hear Me Lord. Michael must have experienced the same frustrations today as George trying to pitch ideas to Lennon McCartney. We learn that George was woken early by some Apple staff who picked up his 8-track tape machine and as it arrives at Twickenham we find out about the recording equipment that Glyn Johns has managed to cobble together at short notice. This is the same equipment that they will use at Savile Row eventually. Even at this early stage, the technical team are not confident that John's electronics guru, Magic Alex, is able to provide anything more than empty promises. A couple of new songs are premiered this morning, aside from a brief Hear Me Lord. Carry That Weight in Octopus's Garden, both germs of ideas, get their first airing today, as well as the instrumental Castle of the King of Birds. The only material John has to offer aside from Don't Let Me Down is his 1968 composition Across the Universe, but he struggles to remember it. The morning's rehearsals consist of loose jams interspersed with unenthusiastic renditions of I've Got a Feeling, Don't Let Me Down and The One After 909. George Martin's arrival prompts them to discuss how the live show might be presented on the soundstage. A break for lunch is coupled with a scouting trip around the film lot in the hope of finding an alternative venue. George Martin proposes the smaller dubbing theatre and Paul and John are both keen on that idea. When they return, however, the tape catches the Beatles and production crew engaged in a lengthy discussion about the presentation of a live show. 
Yoko has been pushed forward to offer an artist's perspective, but her ideas are in direct contrast to Michael's. Paul is, however, surprisingly supportive of Yoko's proposals. Michael is seemingly incapable of imagining any other scenario than a Roman amphitheatre and 2,000 Arabs. Paul proposes something far less ambitious, returning to somewhere like the Tower Ballroom, New Brighton, as a way of getting back to their roots. This discussion ends without a satisfactory decision being made. This won't be the last time that this happens. When the Beatles return to rehearsing, John and George distract themselves with some new toys. George tries a couple of wah-wah pedals and John plugs himself into different amplifiers to get a different sound. They again drift into jamming aimlessly with nothing emerging as a new idea. More procrastination follows as the Beatles run through some loose cover versions of favourite oldies. It's mid-afternoon before any serious rehearsal begins and although ultimately productive, the tortuous session arranging Don't Let Me Down tests everyone's patience and explains why everyone has been avoiding doing any work up to this point. Paul as ever dominates, assuming the producer role, but George in particular finds his way of working stifling to his own creativity. In a way, George is vindicated as the song comes to life once Paul finally abandons a backing vocal idea that clearly doesn't work. Moving directly onto two of us, Paul and George clash yet again. The argument that is captured in the Let It Be and Get Back films is as much a result of the frustrating Don't Let Me Down rehearsal as it is Paul's nitpicking of George's guitar playing in this song. Although voices aren't raised, feelings are hurt and old wounds open up. Ultimately, the only achievement of a whole day's work is that Don't Let Me Down finally has a structure that they can work on. Their discussions today have covered the staging of the show, a potential venue and establishing some kind of working method for learning their new material efficiently. But in the end, nothing has been agreed and the Beatles are no further forward than they were when they started. The rehearsals for All Things Must Pass are perfunctory and add nothing to the arrangement of the song, aside from refreshing everyone's memory. George seems unwilling to take a leadership role in developing his own song, and Paul is clearly now wary of offering his opinion. However, at the very end of the session, the run-throughs of She Came In Through The Bathroom Window show how quickly the Beatles can learn new material, if it's simple enough, and if they enjoy playing it. They don't seem to be able to show enthusiasm if the song isn't immediately memorable. This probably has acted as a kind of filter for quality in the past, but it's working against them at this stage in their career where they need to produce ever more sophisticated material for their maturing audience. For George, this seems to be the point at which his enthusiasm for the project, evident on the second and third, begins to fade away. He realises that despite being extremely prolific and having already brought in more material than John, his status in the Beatles will never rise above that of backing musician. Even then, his contributions are rarely considered. For Paul, the realisation that there is just 12 days left to write, arrange and rehearse material makes him even more dogmatic. His ideas take precedence during rehearsals, even when they are plainly misguided and too much goodwill is used up pursuing ill-conceived ideas till everyone's patience has been lost. The issue for Paul and George, however, is John's lack of leadership. John is happy to sit back and let his two bandmates blame each other for the lack of progress. The lack of input from a producer as a sounding board and a conduit of good ideas means that a lot of opinions are purely subjective, as is any resistance to them. George Martin has stepped back from that role and Glyn Johns doesn't yet seem able to assert himself. Although Glyn is actively sitting in on rehearsals to show solidarity. Michael is unable to consider any other vision of the final show than his own. His resistance to Yoko's input leads to another stalemate and another pile of film canisters with no apparent narrative thread to give the filming a sense of direction. They're having to film anything and everything in case it becomes relevant. With that in mind, Tony Richmond has again captured some footage of Saya Sundra the Hare Krishna devotee back on set. This time accompanied by Mukunda Goswami. 
one of the six original disciples sent by Swami Prabhupada to London from San Francisco in 1968. Mukunda was the more musically inclined of the two men present. Back in the States, he had organised a major music event known as the Mantra Rock Dance. His presence here is not explained, but his experience in staging events may have proved useful had the Beatles chosen to ask. We covered George's relationship with the devotees of the Radha Krishna Temple when we talked about Simasundra and his closeness to the Harrisons up until George's death. Mukunda Goswami was instrumental in writing the musical arrangements for the 1971 album of devotional music that George produced for the temple and their surprise hit single Hare Krishna Mantra. Its success led to tours of Europe and TV appearances and helped establish their organisation ISKCON or the International Society for Krishna Consciousness in Europe. Eventually rising to the role of Minister of Communication of ISKCON he is still active today and will turn 80 in April of 2022. So with both Yoko, Mukunda and the logistical flair of Dennis O'Dell, the project might have gone in a unique direction. However, Michael's more earthbound concept for the show, coupled with Paul's even more small-scale ideas, showed the lack of consensus amongst the participants. Where the Beatles had thrived in their early days was under the guidance of strong leaders, George Martin steering the musical presentation and Brian Epstein as manager exercising sound judgement in how they presented themselves. Without these two influences the Beatles are somewhat rudderless and yet they still continue to evolve as a musical force and produce excellent material. It just takes a lot more heartache and conflict to get there now. Footage from today includes the discussion from Paul about the one after 9.09 in the morning John's hollered don't let me down during the rehearsals and the argument and an out of context clip from Paul asking to try the corny one that was used as an intro to Maxwell's Silver Hammer. In terms of documentary footage, today was quite fruitful. I've received another couple of emails so I thought I'd share them with you. This one's from Dave Hart. Hi Nick, in the last episode you talked about the ragtag version of Dizzy Miss Lizzie and likened the drum break to that that would emerge on Abbey Road later that year. To my ears, the similarity between this version of Dizzy Miss Lizzie and Birthday, recorded four months earlier, is quite strong. And with that in mind, the drum break has much in common with the drum break in that tune. I'm sure everything informed everything but I wanted to share the observation. I also wanted to thank you for your hard work. I grew up with the Beatles in the air, my mum's old copy of Sgt Pepper, the sound of it, the sight of it, the smell of it. It introduced me to a magic world that I still hold dear. I bought my first Beatles book, Mark Lewison's Recording Sessions, in January of 1989, as a 14-year-old schoolboy and have continued to gather information in varying levels of intensity since then. In a crowded marketplace of supposed Beatles expertise, the best sources offer different perspectives by shining a light on different areas, or better detailing familiar areas within the story. I consider you and your podcast to be a trusted and substantial contributor in this field, offering what you find in an honest and open-hearted way. Having listened to you from the start, I'm happy that even in this post-Peter Jackson get-back world, your work is still just as vital and insightful a companion as it was before. Thank you, and keep up the great work. I'd be very happy for you to read out the email. It'd be an honour to be making even a tiny contribution. You're quite right about musical ideas being in the ether. Drum breaks and aeolian cadences alike. It's another reason the get-back period is so fascinating through the almost absent-minded subconscious choices the Beatles were making about which oldies they played, we get such an insight into their mindsets, the very ether of the group itself at the time. As I'm writing, I should share something else with you regarding Paul's Rickenbacker bass at these sessions and the mystery of the strings popping out of the nut and Macca's assertion that it too, along with his Hofner, had been strung upside down at some point. 
I had heard around this time McCartney had used black tape wound strings on his basses. I'd never really followed this up until seeing all the footage again recently, so I thought I would investigate what he used. The strings in question are unusual looking and the search was therefore quite straightforward. They are Rotosound true bass strings with the telltale yellow bindings at the ends up by the tuning heads. On the Get Back documentary series you can see them on his main Hofner violin bass and the Rickenbacker. They are still available now and the first thing you notice is what heavy gauges they are. The average gauge for most bass string sets would be either 45 to 100 or 50 to 105. The standard for the true bass sets is 65 to 115. These are really thick strings. It may account for why the strings are not sitting properly in the top nut of his Rickenbacker, popping out of position as soon as he plays very much, particularly as he uses a pick and bent the notes quite a lot. The issue of the top note also made me think about what McCartney said about the Rickenbacker being strung right-handed. What might that mean? I think that the following things may have happened. One, at some point, White Album Sessions, the Rickenbacker, as was the Hofner, was strung for someone to play right-handed. The nut was turned upside down to accommodate the reverse strings, an easy and necessary part of the process. Could it be that the bass was re-strung for Paul to play left-handed again, and the nut was forgotten about? A few too many joints, Mel? Therefore we see Paul briefly playing his left-handed bass at Savile Row, strung correctly and yet claiming it's somehow right-handed when the strings don't stay in place. Is he just referring to the nut? 2. The new rotor sound true bass strings have been put on the bass and they aren't seated in the nut properly because they're too big. 3. Some sort of combination of 1 and 2. I think number 2 is the most likely explanation for what's happening to the strings, but it doesn't really explain what Paul means about the Rickenbacker being strung right-handed. Number one is most likely the answer for that. Number three may be the answer, although I think it unlikely that the nut is the wrong way up at the same time as the true bass strings have been put in place. It would have been too obvious to whoever was doing it. If it had been strung upside down recently though, that might explain why the idea is in Paul's head and why he suggests it as a reason for the strings coming loose. The true bass strings were working fine on his Hofner, so one must assume that the Hofner's nut was better suited or had been cut to accommodate the strings better. It is his favoured bass throughout the sessions, so any issues would have been identified and rectified quickly. The Rickenbacker is a more refined instrument than the simple Hofner and he only uses it a couple of weeks into the sessions, so perhaps it had been quickly restrung with true bass strings to have as an option but hadn't been properly set up. Intonation adjustments at the saddles as well as the nut, adjusting the truss rod, etc. Therefore, there were various issues that hadn't been picked up on, and by the time he tried it and discovered it was badly set up, still right-handed despite being strung left-handed again, or simply not adjusted to deal with the much heavier strings, it was easier to put it down, describe it as being right-handed, maybe shorthand for cack-handed or wrong, and go straight back to the Hofner. We'll never know, I guess, but the strings themselves are a definite clue as to what was afoot, though. Reading this rather rambling exploration of string theory represents five minutes of your life you'll never get back, but maybe there's a piece of the puzzle in there that can help with the overall picture. Again, thanks for your efforts. You're creating a wonderful resource. Well done. Dave Hart, somewhere in England. And here's another one, this time from Western Australia. It's from David Pennell. Hi Nick. Really loving the podcast. Your approach is excellent. My Beatles story starts on my 10th birthday in September 1970 when I received the Let It Be album from my parents. I'd had no idea that I wanted it or even that it existed, but once I laid eyes on it, my head went boom. Turns out it was the thing I most wanted in the whole world. It's possibly the most thrilling moment of my life. So I didn't quite experience them in real time, but I was very close. 
The album was still in the charts when I got it. And so was the Long and Winding Road single. I'm in Australia, where we got that as a single. After that, my story has elements in common with countless other Beatles fans, including becoming a professional musician for a while. To me, it seemed inevitable that my band would be the next Beatles. It's incredible how relevant and important the Beatles still are. All of the attention generated by the Get Back series is allowing all of us Beatle lovers to bask afresh in our love, and your fantastic podcast is the icing on the cake. I've been listening to bootlegs of the Get Back sessions since the 1970s, and I listened to the whole of the AB Road bootlegs a couple of years ago, but your knowledge, insights and interpretations are giving it a whole new life. Thank you so much. I can't wait for the next 200 episodes. Regards, Dave Pennell, Professor, UWA School of Agriculture and Environment. Well, that's praise indeed. And he's right, it probably is going to be another 200 episodes, but hopefully you're still staying with me. And to receive this kind of feedback is reassuring. The Peter Jackson documentary I feared would basically satiate all the fans and kill the podcast off, but it appears to have just made people have more of an appetite for it, which is very gratifying. Thank you. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.